Christmas season is marked by all sorts of different celebrations, festivities, traditions you may have. Many of you, I know, love your Christmas movies, right? We've moved past the debate about whether or not we can play Christmas music, but now we're thinking about Christmas movies, and I'm curious how many of you have already watched your Christmas movie at least once? There's that favorite one. Many of you. Okay, that was the easy question. Now, here's the more difficult one. How many of you have already watched it more than four times? Okay, no one's feeling ready to be honest just yet, but that's okay. We'll, uh, we'll pray for the Holy Spirit to work. Um, there are Hallmark movies for days, it seems. They're always coming up, and there seems to be a special attraction to them this time of year that we get drawn in. And not to be the cynical male in the group, but they do seem to be broken down into a somewhat predictable storyline that there is no hope and no joy and then Prince Charming arrives, and there is hope, and there is joy. And then something catastrophic happens, and we've lost hope and joy. And then, at the very end, hope and joy are restored, and we ride off into the sunset, and we kiss on the threshold of the house and live happily ever after. It's a way of saying we're just searching for hope and for joy, and there's different ways we express that, right? I think it's interesting that what we see evidenced in these Hallmark movies has a, a very striking resemblance and a striking echo to what the old hymn, O Holy Night, says, a thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. Isn't that what a Hallmark movie is trying to tell you about? A thrill of hope that causes the weary world inside your heart to rejoice. And it's tracking how that thrill of hope how the joy and the rejoicing comes in and, and the battle we have to hang on to it and to keep it forever. It's basically the storyline there. And, and what we'll see in Isaiah 9 here is that there is a better and a more true and a more lasting thrill of hope and a, and a more certain joy that will be enduring and last forever. If you're, you're new to the Bible, you're not quite as familiar, let me give you a brief backstory to Isaiah 9 and what was going on, and it'll help us to make sense of the verse that Jen read and some of the things that are going on there. Isaiah 9, we find the Israelite people facing incredibly dark times, incredibly scary times. There are foreign powers that are uh, coming to them with the threat of invasion. And these are not just any foreign powers, but foreign powers that are known for their extremely barbaric practices. Their, their threat involves, like I said, not just invasion, not just deportation, but massive, large-scale, horrific abuse. That is a terrorizing thought, not only for yourself, but just think in that context of the terror, the fear, the darkness over the thought of your elderly parents being led off by these barbaric enemies. Or perhaps your toddler and infant children and what would happen. You see, it's not a pretty picture that Isaiah 9 brings to us. And yet, in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of their fears, in the midst of their anxieties, God speaks. And he gives them a promise. 
But the promise isn't exactly what they would anticipate or think they need. He promises a child. When you think of the most wicked global powers and the threat of their invasion in disrupting everything in your life, the promise you don't anticipate and long for is the promise of a child. You look for something else. And God similarly will speak to us in our darkness, in our fears, in our anxieties, in the things that scare us and paralyze us with a promise. And it's not always the promise we think we need, is it? He promises a child. It flips the world upside down because we're looking for something else from him oftentimes. He says, my promise of Emmanuel, of God being with you, is what you really need, even when it's not clear that that's what you really need. Ray Ortland would helpfully say it this way. He says, God's answer to everything that has ever terrorized us is a child. His answer to the bullies swaggering through history is not to become an even bigger bully. His answer is Jesus. So this morning, I'll tell you what we're going to do this morning. This morning, we will refuse to let our messy, broken, stressful lives overshadow the child promised in Isaiah 9-6. I want to invite you into that, to refuse this morning to let the messiness and the brokenness and the stressors of your life, they're all real. We're not denying any of that, but we're going to refuse to let those things overshadow the promise of this child in Isaiah 9. Stated positively, what we're going to say together is that Jesus is all that we need. Now, the outline this morning will be one of the simplest you've ever seen. You've actually already read the outline this morning. We're simply going to walk through the four names given to this child who was born, the son who was given, the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, the prince of peace. And we're going to cling to him. So let's get started. The first point, the wonderful counselor. The wonderful counselor. Jesus is the embodiment, the perfect embodiment of divine wisdom. And what that means then is that we should follow him. The word wonderful has become uh, overused. It feels like it's always right there on, the, uh, on your phone when you're typing and it's trying to tell you what to say. It's one of those words, words that regularly pops up. It gets overused and it has lost its meaning in many ways. But it's a rich word, wonderful. Actually means wonder of wonders. More than just a really good counselor, but a wondrous counselor that is difficult for us to even fathom how wondrous he is. We see that, that word and other points in Scripture being used in ways that help to describe and see the grandeur of it. Exodus 3.20, we read the same word. So I will stretch out my hand and strike, strike Egypt with all the wonders 
that I will do to it. See, wonder there doesn't mean just really good things, like, whoa, mind-blowing wonders, difficult to comprehend wonders. Or in Psalm 78, we read, we will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generations the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. So when we read that Jesus is the wonderful counselor, he's not just saying he's, he's a really good counselor, you should talk to him for some wisdom. No, there's, there's wondrous wisdom available here that we should build our lives on and follow. And interestingly, it's not just saying that he's wonderful and really good. He's also going beyond just being a counselor. Now, I hope that we could attest to the value and the goodness of counselors, whether that be a professional counselor that we speak with and that help us to understand and process life and find a better way forward, or merely the abundance of counselors, of wise people in our lives that can help to guide us. Counselors are a good thing. But there's a specific connotation, a specific meaning being indicated by this word counselor here. It has the idea of someone who has been paralyzed with helplessness from their own bad decisions. I wonder if you've felt that way before. I'm paralyzed with helplessness because of the bad decisions I've made. And in that time, the need for a wondrous counselor is brought out even more acutely, even more obviously. Man, I don't know what to do here because I have really, really dug myself a hole. And the only thing I do when I get my shovel out is keep digging deeper. What are we going to do about this? How do you see the embodiment of divine wisdom, the wondrous counselor, well, there's any number of ways we could talk about it, but let me just give you one simple one. If you had one day to live, and you knew only one day to live, what are the things that begin to go through your mind that you'd like to do? Perhaps you want to go places and see things. Perhaps you think, I'm not going to fast for the whole day. What are the restaurants I want to go to to enjoy the best steak? Or maybe you say, no, I don't, I don't want to do that. I'll just have peanut butter and jelly and, you know, be good with the normal things of life so I can sit with the people I want to be with and enjoy those relationships. I don't know what's coming to your mind, but when Jesus knew he had one day to live, what did he do? He chose to wash feet and then give his life for yours. Neither of those come high on my list of things I'd be looking for, but there's a wondrous counselor providing a pathway of divine wisdom. And friend, I just want to ask you this morning, are you following this wonderful counselor? Are you seeing right in front of you the things that maybe you do or don't have? Jesus certainly could have seen right in front of him what he did have and what he didn't have. But what was the path of wisdom for him? To lay down his life and to serve. Is that the viewpoint that you're embodying this Christmas season? You see, we can think about the, the family that we don't have to gather with. Maybe that's many of you. We've talked 
about some of those difficulties. And others, you're seeing the family that you do have to gather with, but you wish you weren't gathering with them for one reason or another. (laughs) Or maybe you really enjoy the family you get to gather with, but any of those circumstances blind us from seeing an opportunity to lay down our life and serve one another. Or maybe it's it's a work-related situation. You're going to spend too many hours working this Christmas season with a hard-driving boss and nasty coworkers you don't really want to be around, and that's what clouds your vision and fills your mind, and you're unable to see the opportunities to serve, to follow this wonderful counselor who embodies divine wisdom. What does it mean then to say a thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices, the hope, the joy that's being after here? Why does the weary world rejoice over this wondrous counselor? Because a better wisdom has arrived. A wisdom that's not really similar to anything else we see in this world. But then again, maybe that's the point. We weren't looking for a child We weren't looking for someone to wash our feet. And it's precisely what we needed. The wonderful counselor then is the embodiment of divine wisdom, so follow him. Secondly, we come to the mighty God. The mighty God who is the perfect embodiment of divine power who defeats his enemies with ease and the call is to hide behind him. You know, it's funny, sometimes we talk about the definitions of words. Mighty God, what it means, you might want to write this down, is the God who is mighty. <laughs> I'm glad, glad I'm here to explain that for you. But it's not like a, an, an older brother who picks on a younger brother and usually beats him in sports or in wrestling unless he kind of gets distracted and then the younger one comes up. It's not mighty like that. No, the the might of this God is more more like this. We see all the world powers gathering, presidents, prime ministers, dictators, whatever, that person is, that group. They gather at a leadership summit. They make their plans. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. We're going to pursue this thing. We're going to pursue that thing. And you put them all together, and they're a bit like child's Legos when dad walks into the room. And he laughs. (laughs) You guys thought you were going to make a plan and tell us how things were going to go down. That's the kind of mighty God, the God who walks in and all of our plans are like the plans of little Legos. That's the the loose paraphrase of Psalm 2. God sits above and he laughs, he scoffs. And of course, it's, it's kind of humiliating, isn't it, to think of yourself like a Lego? And so you wonder, is that really... I mean, is that really an apt description? Don't I want to assert that I'm a little higher up on the food chain than that? Well, let me just take you back to what Isaiah 40 tells us. Look at the screen. You'll see it here, starting in verse 21. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. That's us. 
who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes rulers of the earth as emptiness. There is no match for this mighty God. None at all. Nothing you bring, nothing any global power can bring, nothing any employer can bring, nothing. Or Psalm 46 would say it this way. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. He is the mighty God whom we can hide behind regardless of what circumstances are coming our way. And it's important here that you remember the context of Isaiah 9 because who is promised? A child will be born, a son will be given. What that means then is that this mighty God is high and above all we are like grasshoppers and Legos before him. And yet there is full accessibility to this power. That's the stunning part. And there's all sorts of things in our lives that we feel bound to, that we can find powerful, that we hide behind as if they are the mighty pseudo-God in our life. Right, so if you're a student here, you may think the real hope, the real joy in your life is found in getting to the next level of a particular video game. That's where I'm really happy. That's where I really find joy or in a particular grade that you can get, or if that boy or that girl would just know that you exist. I hide behind the power that that thing brings to me. Or in our 20s, we start to think of it as being finding the right job or the right spouse, and I hide behind that powerful thing. In our 30s and 40s, we start to find the power in moving up the, the ladder of our jobs or in raising kids or in having to grapple with ongoing singleness that we didn't anticipate. Our 50s and 60s are often this search to find, find meaning and joy in what might be brought by early retirement. I finally don't have to be stuck behind the grind of work and there's power in liberation from that jerk of a boss. Maybe it's, it's more relational, trying to make sure that your kids and your grandkids don't hate you. And there's power there when I can hide behind that mighty pseudo-God of relational happiness in the family. Our 70s, 80s, 90s, then, we are, we're seeking the, the health that maybe we had 50 years ago. Hide behind that power we once had that seems so gone. Perhaps it's the, the lost companionship of a spouse or friends who are now in glory. And we can't bring them back. But oh, do we wish to hide behind that relationship that we wish we had. You see, friends, when those things fail, and all of them inevitably will, you will need the mighty God to hide behind. But perhaps worse, when those things are realized and they let you down, as they always do, 
even more so you will need the mighty God of the universe to hide behind. What they highlight then, whether they're present or not, is that the real joy blocker, the real hope blocker, is not those things I'm pursuing, it's me. That there's a pride, a selfishness inside of me that prevent me from having joy in the things that I want or the things that I've not yet been able to get. So when the hymn writer writes, a thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. Why does the weary world rejoice over the mighty God? Because he's mightier than any pseudo-God that this world affords. And he doesn't come as we expected, but then again, maybe that's just the point. That the promotion we wanted may or may not be accessible. But even if it is, it's still not mighty enough to defeat the true joy blocker in your own heart. And this mighty God is, and you can hide behind him. He's the wonderful counselor. He's the mighty God. He's also the everlasting father. The everlasting father. He's the perfect embodiment of divine affection. So the call is to enjoy him. Maybe, maybe you had a good dad who could look past your dumb decisions and accept you with open arms and continue to love you. I can't open the book of Isaiah almost ever without thinking a friend of mine who decided as a high schooler that he wanted a Bible verse from Isaiah 40 tattooed on his left arm. Now, whatever you think or don't think about tattoos, one piece of advice that I can offer to you based on the experience of my friend is that you should make sure you run a good spell check before you get a Bible verse tattooed on your arm. He failed to get the second A in Isaiah included, and so rather than saying Isaiah 40, it merely said Isa 40. <laughs> and for a dad who didn't think particularly highly of tattoos, it put the son in a precarious position of saying, how will dad think of me? Fortunately, his dad loved him and was a good dad and did not get angry and said, son, this is a good learning experience, and I doubt you will forget to do spell check ever again on your tattoos, and he hasn't. I do hope you get more out of the sermon than just how to check on making sure you get the right spelling on these things, but it is important. Others of you, though, maybe didn't have a dad who was quite so forgiving. Maybe you didn't know your dad at all. Maybe he didn't want you. Felt like you couldn't ever measure up, couldn't be good enough. He, he wanted somebody who was smarter than you, or prettier than you, or more athletic than you, or was better with their hands than you were. What you intuitively know in that is that although that person may have possessed the title and the biological reality of being your father, they weren't embodying and possessing true fatherhood. You know that, and you long for it. We all do. And here in this child who is born, this son who is given, we find a true father, an everlasting father, who will know us fully and continue to love us deeply. Now, psychologists tell us that that's the deepest need of the human heart, to be fully known, fully loved. 
It's nothing new that they've discovered. They're just recognizing ancient truths found in the Bible. But I want you to think about this for a second. Because to be fully loved but not fully known ends up being really discouraging because it's nothing more than sentimentality. I love you, I love you, but you don't know the bad stuff about me. So you don't really love me. That's just a sentimentality of you want warm fuzzies. But on the other side, to be fully known and yet not fully loved is an absolutely devastating place of rejection to live in. Where I'm scared to disclose myself, to let you know who I really am on the inside, the thoughts I'm really thinking, and I take that step of transparency, of vulnerability, and I allow myself to be fully known, and then I'm not fully loved. It's crushing for the soul. You see, we must be both fully known and fully loved. And if you take away one of them, you lose the beauty and the wonder of it. And here in this sun, we find the perfect embodiment of divine affection. The everlasting Father who will know us more fully than we know ourselves and love us more deeply than we know how to love. Wow. This is so encouraging to us because the reality is all of us, every single one of us here and online, we're all a hot mess on the inside in one way or another. It's just that some of us, some of us are more open about it than others. But it's a reality for all of us. And here we find the only place where we can be fully known in all perfection and fully loved at the perfection of love. And when you find that person, what is it that you do? You enjoy their presence. Maybe you, you've known somebody from a human capacity that knows you as fully as you think is possible and loves you as deeply as you think is possible. Maybe they're here and, and maybe this Christmas season is really hard because that person's not here anymore. But if they were here, you'd want to sit and talk Maybe about insignificant things, maybe sports and movies and music and whatever else carries the day. Maybe you'd want to talk about really significant things, the deepest joy you're feeling and the, the deepest struggle that you're walking through. But when you ran out of things to talk about, you know what you'd want to do? You'd want to sit and sip hot chocolate or warm apple cider and just enjoy their presence because there's nowhere else I'd rather be. That's who the everlasting father is. Someone where I can sit and just enjoy his presence because he knows me fully, loves me deeply, and wants to be with me. This is wondrous. So then when we go back to the old hymn, A Thrill of Hope, the weary world rejoices. Why does the weary world rejoice at the coming of the everlasting Father? Friends, it's because your true Father has finally arrived. The world is often too busy to truly know you. And once they do start to know you, they're too quick to cancel you. Neither known nor loved. But this everlasting Father is the perfect embodiment of divine 
affection. So enjoy his presence this Christmas. Finally, we come to the Prince of Peace. We've seen that this Jesus, this child who was given, the son who was born, was the wonderful counselor, rather is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace, the perfect embodiment of divine tranquility. He brings a kingdom that's marked by peace. So welcome that kingdom. I'm, I'm reminded of the old Sandra Bullock movie, Miss Congeniality, and there's the, the beauty pageant, and every single candidate comes up and says, what's the one thing you long for? World peace. We laugh at it, but we also long for it. This Jesus, he's a prince with a real kingdom, not a fake one, a, a real kingdom. But the reality is this, we know his kingdom is real, but we all have a kingdom that we've sort of devised in our mind that we're living for, that we're building, trying to fence in and establish the castle. And I wonder this morning if you wouldn't take just a minute to identify the kingdom that you're living your life for. And recognize at various points, it's probably been invigorating to live for that kingdom. But it doesn't take too long for it to stop being invigorating and start being exhausting. Because you weren't meant to be king. And it's fun to chase it for a bit. But it doesn't take a whole lot of chasing to realize that I'm chasing the wrong things. So as you dwell on this Prince of Peace, stop vying for your own kingdom and start welcoming his. When it says he's the Prince of Peace, it does involve a future kingdom where there will be peace across the entire earth, but what we've experienced now and is available to you now is that you can be reconciled to God. You can have a relationship with God where you were formerly his enemy. See, the Bible describes the, basically the message of the gospel in four statements that we say God is holy, he's perfect, he's unlike anyone else, but we are not. Our sin separates us from God. It creates a wall of hostility where he's there, I'm here, and the wall keeps us from him. It keeps us from the prince. It keeps us from his kingdom. God is holy. I am not. But fortunately, Jesus came, and he didn't just came. Jesus saves. He came, lived the perfect life that we were supposed to live but didn't died the gruesome death that our sins deserved so that that wall of hostility could be broken down because he took the judgment that we deserved and then he can offer us peace with God. That's the message of Christmas. And if you are here this morning and you have not trusted in that Jesus to bring you back to God, this morning, I urge you to do that. It is the best decision you'll ever make I'd love to talk to you after the service. If you're watching online, send me an email. I never get tired of having that conversation. I long for that conversation, saying, how can I know this Prince of Peace? How can I confess that God is holy and I am not, and Jesus saves, and now Christ is my life? 
St. Augustine long, long ago said it this way. He said, our hearts are restless until they rest in you. We're seeking a kingdom, and you can keep seeking, but you'll have no rest until you seek the kingdom of this prince has the peace that can only be offered through himself. And one day it will bring a perfect world of peace that we long for. We're told in the scriptures that in that world, the lion will lay down with the lamb. Imagine that. You wouldn't even have to lock your doors at night. A world where tornadoes will no longer bring destruction at Christmas time or at any time. A world where you won't need insurance. Imagine that. Perfect peace throughout. And while we know that's not exactly possible right now, if we're honest with ourselves, our souls are racing at a breakneck speed for internal peace. And some of us race ahead down the proverbial straightaway of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, seeking the finish line of peace that I can give better gifts or have a little bit better stuff. And others race down the straightaway, seeking that peace through minimalism. And it's, I'll find my peace through less stuff and less clutter. Others of us race for that internal peace through self-gratifying pleasures of getting to this place and doing that thing. And others of us race for the peace instead of through self-gratifying pleasures, but through other-centered serving. And if I can do enough things, help enough people, be available enough for those in need, then I can sort of defeat the internal judge who tells me I don't measure up, and I can have that internal peace. See, we're all doing this in our own different ways. It's ultimately a way of seeking our own peace and our own kingdom where we can be the king of it. Friends, welcome Jesus' kingdom, not your own. So when we say that there's a thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. The hope, the joy. Why does the weary world rejoice over the Prince of Peace? Because there's finally an exit strategy from your own crumbling kingdom. Maybe you didn't know how to get out. I'm telling you. And not only is there an exit strategy, the Prince of Peace came down and created the path for you out of your kingdom and into his where peace can truly be found. You know, we began by talking about Hallmark movies. The hope, the joy, got it, lost it, regained it. You basically spend the whole movie looking for the final act, the joy that comes at the very end. That's why some of us are tempted just to skip ahead and say, ah, I saw the end. <laughs> Everybody's looking for their version of the Prince Charming, right? And for some of us, that's a literal Prince Charming, a romantic relationship, right? But there's a thousand other Prince Charmings, versions of Prince Charming, that we all define a little bit differently, that awful offer real hope, and lasting joy. They offer something that's better than your present circumstances. 
So this morning, as we, we go to communion in just a minute here, here's what I want to invite you to do. I want to invite you to reflect and identify who you're seeing as your proverbial Prince Charming. What's the key that will unlock real hope and lasting joy in your life? Confess it to God. Be honest before him, knowing that he is the everlasting father where you can be fully known. You don't have to be afraid and deeply loved. And then reflect on the wonder of this promised child, this Jesus, the child who was born, the son who was given. Because he's the child that was promised you in your darkness that can bring you the true hope, the lasting joy that we all desire. Let's pray. God in heaven, we, we thank you that you looked down upon us in our darkness and in our waiting, in our fears and our anxieties, and you didn't leave us alone. You sent your son, Jesus, as the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father and the prince of peace. We ask for your grace this morning to see where we are seeking other kingdoms that cannot offer the hope and the joy that is is only found in yours. Help us to run to you and to you alone. Give us the courage to actually confess these things to you and give us the grace that we so desperately need to find them in you. We pray in Jesus' name.